0: Welcome to the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators podcast. My name is Natalia Outlinger, and today I'm meeting Paul Kinenmont to discuss predictive coding and its use in international arbitration. Paul is a senior associate in the litigation and arbitration group at Milbank LLP and a fellow of the Chartered Institute. In his practice, Paul specializes in commercial litigation, international arbitration, and regulatory investigations. Thank you very much, Paul, for accepting our invitation.
1: Many thanks for having me, Natalia.
0: International arbitration cases usually require a review of a large number of documents, which significantly increases time and costs. As efficiency is so desired in arbitration at the moment, new technologies may provide some solutions And predictive coding appears to be a particularly interesting one to watch. But first, we need to understand what this innovation is about. And that's why I'm here with Paul, who agreed to share his knowledge and practical experience of using predictive coding in his practice. So, how did you first come across predictive coding?
1: Some years ago, I defended a large bank in a regulatory investigation by English and American financial authorities. There were several material dynamics in that investigation. First, the sheer volume of electronic documents, which numbered well over 30 million. Second, the regulator's expectations and the bank's conduct obligations to investigate its own wrongdoing, comprehensively, in a way that could easily be audited. And third, the client's desire for efficiency and low cost – Predictive coding fit the bill perfectly and was especially useful in helping us to decide which documents we could reasonably omit from further consideration. We convinced the financial authorities of its merits, realised substantial cost savings for our client and achieved convincing results.
0: So how does predictive coding work?
1: Predictive coding is an algorithm that can review and mark documents for relevance in place of lawyers. First, though, someone must teach the algorithm how to code the documents accurately enough. The automation achieved can reduce the number of irrelevant documents for human review and identify quickly the documents most likely to be relevant in a given case. Without the use of predictive coding, lawyers would have to go through all electronic documents returned by searches to find the relevant evidence. This takes longer and costs more without necessarily improving results.
0: How is predictive coding normally used?
1: There are three ways to use predictive coding that I have encountered. First, and most importantly, it can replace human review to a great extent. Essentially, this involves a senior lawyer with proper knowledge of the case, reviewing and marking for relevance a stratified sample of documents, which is usually known as the reference set. The algorithm learns from these decisions by comparing them to subsequent decisions on further documents – then replicates those decisions across most of the remaining documents. The remaining two ways to use predictive coding are really a matter of internal case management, but can still be useful. One is to promote efficiency. As human reviewers code documents, the algorithm learns from their cumulative coding and promotes unreviewed documents it believes are likelier to be relevant. This means they're reviewed sooner which can help lawyers to find key evidence more quickly and advise clients as to their prospects of success sooner. Second, it helps with quality control and risk management. As reviewers code, the algorithm records the decisions it thinks should be applied based upon its learning. This happens in the background and does not affect the human review. At the end of the human review, the two sets of results can be compared and any differences assessed to check for mistakes. Now, of course, depending on the case, these benefits can sometimes all be realised together.
0: It still sounds like a complicated operation. Can you walk us through the process, please?
1: Sure. There are different predictive coding software options on the market, all of which go through slight variations of the stages we'll summarise now. Usually, these stages will be agreed between the parties in a protocol, which can be amended if further electronic documents are discovered or generated between the document production phase and trial. So first, the parameters to be used, which will include individuals whose documents will be searched, the types of document, such as emails and PDFs, a date range, keyword searches, and document management techniques like deduplication, which removes from consideration things like instances of the same attachment that have been forwarded many times to different people. Second, the parties must agree the permissible margin of error for the algorithm. This is crucial because it dictates the precision that must be achieved for decisions on the relevance of documents. The more precision required, the longer it will take to train the algorithm. But even achieving great precision usually involves relatively small amounts of manual review. Third, after the search results are obtained, there must be population of the stratified sample of documents, the reference set, which the algorithm will use as a reference point. The reference set must be large enough to be representative and must contain good examples of both relevant and irrelevant documents, in both cases ideally with several developed paragraphs of text. After the parties have agreed these parameters, the senior lawyer can train the algorithm by coding for relevance the documents in the reference set. Once the reference set is complete, the algorithm generates more sample batches of documents for the senior lawyer to review. As the senior lawyer reviews these further sample batches the algorithm learns by comparing the new coding decisions against the reference set, becoming progressively more accurate. This process finishes once the coding applied by the algorithm replicates that applied by the senior lawyer to the pre-agreed level of accuracy, and is then replicated across all search results.
0: And what do we receive as a final result?
1: Well, a good way to visualise the results is to picture a U-shaped graph with the number of documents plotted on the vertical axis and the percentage certainty of the algorithms coding on the horizontal axis. On the left-hand side of the U is the hopefully large number of documents the algorithm has coded as not relevant. These documents are removed from further consideration, except perhaps for limited quality control checks. On the right-hand side of the U are documents the algorithm is sufficiently certain are relevant. These are prioritised and promoted for careful human consideration. In the middle of the EU is hopefully a minority of documents about which the algorithm remains uncertain. That is, documents the algorithm cannot code due to the margin of error agreed between the parties. These documents will require manual review after the documents coded relevant. Once human reviewers have checked the relevant and uncertain results of the predictive coding, and quality control checked the documents coded not relevant, the process is complete. Relevant documents can be checked manually for privilege, and produced to the other side, while irrelevant documents fall away. Any issues concerning accuracy can be audited by reference to the processes we have discussed, which are recorded by software.
0: Okay, so if I understand you correctly, then what we are left with is a significantly smaller number of relevant documents for lawyers to review, which seems to be very efficient. Could you tell us more about the benefits of using this technology?
1: There are several benefits, which include, first, greater efficiency – Assuming the process we have discussed is performed properly, less manual review is required, meaning greater speed. Second, greater certainty. The replication of one senior lawyer's decisions by an impartial algorithm can be superior to decisions by several junior reviewers whose decisions can diverge. Third, cost saving. The reduction of human review while maintaining accuracy saves clients large amounts of lawyer's fees. Fourth, the results can be audited easily. This means the parties or the tribunal can usually address any problems or make any necessary adjustments during or after document production in good time before trial.
0: Do you think it has more applicability in international arbitration when there is more flexibility with the proceedings than in litigation?
1: In my view, the benefits of predictive coding apply in both settings. In several jurisdictions, active consideration during litigation of the use of technology, including predictive coding, is now mandatory, so the parties may have no choice. This is certainly true in most English litigation following recent changes to the disclosure regime. This shows that predictive coding is well beyond the early adoption stage. It strikes me that international arbitration, which rightly prides itself on efficiency, flexibility and party autonomy, cannot afford to ignore predictive coding.
0: And what is the current legal status of the predictive coding in court proceedings?
1: Here in England, the courts were slow to analyse predictive coding and expressly permit its usage, but this has changed recently. In early 2017, in the Pirro case, the parties agreed that predictive coding was a good idea, but, given its novelty, requested permission from the court to use it. The judge acknowledged the utility of predictive coding in the context of managing huge electronic disclosure exercises, referencing the flexibility of the existing procedural rules and the court's discretion. The judge's reasons for endorsing predictive coding were essentially those we already discussed, efficiency, certainty, speed, audit trail and cost savings. A few months later, in a contested application in the BCA case, the judge cited Pirro and ruled in favour of predictive coding. Trial in the BCA case came in late 2017, in which evidence found through predictive coding was used. Judgment was rendered in early 2018. Consequently, in most cases, the narrative in England shifted from whether to use predictive coding to how to use it. Less than a year later, the procedural rules governing disclosure were amended and this narrative was carried into them. Although these new rules do not expressly order predictive coding in all cases, they strongly encourage it by saying that the parties must promote the reliable, efficient, and cost effective conduct of disclosure, including through technology and must consider using software or analytical tools, including technology-assisted review software and techniques. This wording encompasses predictive coding, along with other technological solutions, some of which may not have been discovered or tested in court yet.
0: These rules encourage the use of predictive coding in courts. How about arbitration? Are there any legal obstacles that prevent its use in international arbitration proceedings?
1: The short answer is no. In many ways, the existing framework permits and encourages the use of predictive coding. Although we have limited time, let's consider some important authorities, starting with the New York Convention. Now, given its age, unsurprisingly, there's no express mention of predictive coding in the New York Convention. However, Article 51D stipulates in relevant part that recognition and enforcement of the award may be refused if the arbitral procedure was not in accordance with the agreement of the parties, or, failing such agreement, was not in accordance with the law of the country where the arbitration took place. This stresses party autonomy, and three conclusions can be drawn. First, if the parties agree to use predictive coding, there should be no difficulties arising from its use at the enforcement stage in signatory countries. Second, party agreement should override any contravening procedural laws in the seat, And third, even if the parties disagree, but the tribunal orders predictive coding anyway, there should still be no problem during enforcement, unless the jurisdiction of the seat prohibits predictive coding.
0: And is that likely?
1: No. We've discussed England, and I have not yet encountered a country that prohibits predictive coding, but I would be interested to hear from any listeners who know differently. There is certainly no prohibition in the UNSITRA model law, upon which many countries' arbitration statutes are based.
0: So what does the model law say?
1: Again, there is no express mention of predictive coding. The relevant articles are 19.1, which grants the parties freedom to agree upon procedure, and 19.2, which grants to the tribunal broad discretion to decide procedural matters. The commentary that accompanies the UNCITRAL model law confirms this and is encouraging. It stresses the need for party autonomy and tribunal flexibility in our international disputes, and allows tailored solutions to procedural problems. Thus, Article 19 encourages innovative approaches to procedural issues not expressly mentioned in the Model Law. In my view, given the sheer volume of electronic documents in most international arbitration proceedings, predictive coding is one such innovation.
0: What about institutional rules? Are there any regulations concerning predictive coding in arbitration rules?
1: Well, again, given our limited time, let's take an example, the ICC rules, which permit predictive coding. Article 19 permits the parties to agree on procedure or, absent such agreement, allows the tribunal to decide the procedure. Article 22.4 obliges the tribunal to act impartially and to allow each party to present its case. Article 25, meanwhile, obliges the tribunal to establish the facts of the case quickly and allows it to order a party to produce additional evidence if necessary. Finally, Appendix 4D contains suggestions designed to control the time and cost associated with document production. Moreover, there are two ICC Commission reports of relevance. The 2012 report on controlling time and cost encourages parties to use whatever tools possible to reduce the scope of document production, subject to the needs of each case. More specifically, the 2012 report on managing e-document production encourages the deployment of new technology in this regard, subject to continuing improper human involvement. And predictive coding, of course, is one such new technology.
0: What about soft law? Are there any guidelines or rules which parties may refer to?
1: The two likeliest sources here are the IBA rules and the Prague rules. The IBA rules are encouraging, and I suspect the next version will expressly mention predictive coding. According to its preamble, the purpose of the IBA rules is to ensure an efficient, economical and fair process for the taking of evidence. Article 2.1 obliges the Tribunal to consult the parties as soon as possible about evidential issues. Pursuant to Article 2.2, this consultation may address the scope, timing and manner of the taking of evidence, which includes the requirements, procedure and format applicable to the production of documents. This should be subject to the promotion of efficiency, economy and conservation of resources. Now, all of this taps into themes we've already been discussing. Meanwhile, Article 3.3 specifically mentions search terms and other means of searching for documents in an efficient and economical manner, which could certainly encompass predictive coding. The commentary on the latest version of the IBA rules is also instructive. It makes clear that the collection of evidence must be approached in a proportionate manner, bearing in mind the complexity and value of the dispute. It also stresses saving time and cost – and encourages efficiency when searching for documents. This fits with several of the benefits of predictive coding we have mentioned.
0: And what about the Prague Rules? The
1: Prague Rules are an interesting exception, insofar as they expressly discourage document production and e-discovery. This removes the need for predictive coding by removing the problem of an excessive volume of electronic documents in the first place. There can be exceptions to this situation, but, in keeping with the civil law tradition, The Prague Rules emphasise the importance of known documents relied upon by the parties. My suggestion, however, is that this does not mean there is no place for predictive coding at all in all arbitrations involving the Prague Rules. A party must, after all, still identify comprehensively and reliably the documentary evidence upon which it will rely to establish the facts of its case. In some cases, of course, this may be obvious, but in others, extensive searches may need to be undertaken. If so, For internal risk management purposes and for reliable results at low cost, predictive coding may still be useful.
0: What is the human involvement in the whole process? Having heard how powerful and precise algorithms can be, one may wonder whether this technology is going to replace the need for lawyers.
1: Human involvement will remain absolutely necessary. Predictive coding is only one part of the document production phase, which itself is only one part of the arbitration process most of which is unaffected by predictive coding. In fact, the best evidence for continuing human involvement flows from our discussion of the Prague Rules just now. Civil law cases with no document production phase still require extensive human involvement. As to the document production process itself, human involvement will also remain essential for at least the following reasons. One, initial case analysis to identify issues and potential evidence required. Two, interaction between the parties to agree the document production process three justification of that process to the tribunal four interaction with the algorithm provider throughout five initial document review by a senior lawyer six quality control reviews and reviews of documents about which the algorithm is unsure and seven checks for privilege and other redactable information The best way, therefore, to think of predictive coding is as a client enjoying enhanced representation, as opposed to finding a substitute for that representation.
0: And what are the limitations of this innovation?
1: Uh, This is an important question. Predictive coding is not perfect and is not suitable for all cases. Some limitations include, for instance, that a lot of work is front-loaded. The issues and sums in dispute, therefore, need to justify the extensive involvement of a senior lawyer from an early stage. Consequently, predictive coding is not usually suited to smaller cases. Another example is the possible amplification of errors. The ultimate results of predictive coding can only be as good as the senior lawyer undertaking the initial reviews, which is why those initial reviews are so important. That said, given the audit trail, it should be possible to discover errors quite easily. Finally, the party's agreed accuracy level is important and there is a balance to be struck, the algorithm must meaningfully reduce the numbers of documents for manual review, but without excluding too many potentially relevant documents.
0: Can predictive coding work on all types of documents that need to be reviewed in the proceedings?
1: Unfortunately, certain documents cannot qualify. Given its nature, predictive coding works best on text-rich documents with consistent wording. Consequently, The paucity of text in text messages and chat messages, along with frequent colloquialisms, abbreviations and misspellings, means such documents must usually be reviewed manually. At present, too, predictive coding does not work on audio data, although there is now software that can transcribe audio data to a high, but not perfect, degree of accuracy, after which predictive coding can apply. Also, although predictive coding can work across multiple languages, Separate algorithms will be required for each language. So, if there are only a minority of foreign language documents, it will likely be more efficient to review these manually.
0: From your perspective as a user, is it difficult to use and to teach the algorithm to receive the expected results?
1: Predictive coding is user-friendly. I would encourage listeners to use predictive coding whenever possible in document-heavy arbitrations. Usually it is easier to teach the algorithm to identify which documents are not relevant than to positively identify relevant documents. This is because there are usually more examples of non-relevant documents than relevant documents. This is still very helpful though and reduces massively the amount of human review necessary, often by as much as 95% or more, thus reducing costs. Sometimes though, a lack of positive results means that search terms need to be amended and refined or the algorithm retrained. Useful refinements are possible with input from the algorithm provider and or discussions with the other side, depending on the circumstances, but this is a possible challenge that will need to be explained to the client. We should not forget that predictive coding can be combined with techniques such as deduplication to reduce data sets, and with techniques such as visual analytics to hone in on likely relevant documents. I have no doubt that over time, predictive coding will become even more effective than it is already, and that other technologies will evolve to interrogate data sets in different ways. This will further reduce costs and improve results for clients, and so free lawyers to concentrate and add value on other aspects of their cases.
0: Thank you very much, Paul, for this comprehensive explanation of predictive coding. You walk us through this very technical and complicated process, which is now, I hope, easier to understand for our listeners. Taking into account the benefits of using this technology, such as its efficiency and reliability, it seems to be a perfect solution to cut the costs and duration of arbitration proceedings. I hope that as arbitrators and counsel become more proficient in using technology such as predictive coding, international arbitration will evolve to better serve its purpose, which is to resolve disputes quickly and efficiently. Thank you once again for your time and great explanation of this topic.
1: Thanks again for having me, Natalia.